This is The Visible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Florian Engelmeyer, who is a professor of organizational economics at the Department of Economics at LMU Munich. Today, we are going to talk about his paper, The Effect of Incentives in Non-Routine Analytical Team Tasks, Evidence from a Field Experiment, written with Stefan Grimm, David Schindler, and Simeon Shadi. Florian, welcome to the program. Hi, Jordi. Thanks a lot for having me. Florian, I want to start the discussion by talking about a classification of different types of tasks that workers can perform as part of their jobs, and that has been very influential in economics. Uh, it was first introduced by author Levy and Murnane, uh, and that you make a heavy use of uh, in this paper. Can you tell us how these authors organize the different uh, types of tasks? So essentially, uh, there's two dimensions along which they, they classify tasks. Tasks can be manual or cognitive, performed with your hands or via thinking and problem solving, uh, and routine or non-routine. So routine and manual would be a job on the assembly line or picking fruit on the field. And then there could be non-routine manual tasks, craftsmen that solve individualized problems. And there could be routine cognitive tasks, so a, a clerk in accounting. And then where we think we fit in with this study, non-routine cognitive demanding tasks, which is you know, individualized problem solving. So next to this classification that author and co-authors have done, they also document the task share of those, those tasks in the labor market. And the thing that we see is that non-routine and cognitive demanding tasks become relatively more and more important because in particular, routinized and manual tasks can be mechanized or automated. There's going to be less and less of it. Non-routine analytical tasks are also important because they are the main driver of innovation and growth. That is, they are the ones that are creating the machines that are replacing the other tasks. Exactly. So, and, and in some sense, I, this is what, I mean, there's very important manual tasks and routine tasks, but in terms of, if we have discussions about, you know, the, the future of our economies, then I guess in the, in the broader context of innovation policy, so what we care about is exactly those tasks. You know, how do we get people to innovate? Now, who comes up with the ne next great app, the next industrial robot, the next AI? changes the world. So this paper studies the effect of incentives, uh, specifically team incentives on productivity. You mentioned in the paper that there are already lots of papers showing that workers become more productive if they are rewarded for being more productive. Furthermore, the finding that if I pay you to do something, you will do it is not at all surprising. Why do we need another paper about the effect of incentives on productivity? There is... In fact, as you, as you rightly said, a vast amount of evidence that documents exactly that thing. And when I, when I teach my, my organization's class and I start with incentives, this is what I say. You know, if, there's, if we pay incentives for something that we can measure well, we tend to get more of that thing that we incentivize. Now, that measuring well is a key component here. And the vast majority of papers that we see on pay for performance, on the, the effect of incentives, is on tasks where we can measure the output well, which, I, and I guess there, there is no, no necessity that this is the case, but most of the examples that come to mind come from the domain of manual and routine tasks. So there is that kind of this routinization, I guess, goes in hand with the standardization of the production process and something that comes out at the end is, some, is easily countable. Be that stuffing letters, registering books, picking fruit or lettuce on the field, in the end, there is something that I can count or weigh or measure in some sense. That's where we also expect, so when, whenever there's a direct link between effort and that output, that's where we'd expect incentives to be most effective. And that's where we've seen those studies. Now, when we, when you briefly introduced the reason why non-routine analytical team tasks or tasks are probably particularly relevant, you mentioned the innovation component. That is something that we see if we go out in the, in the world and see, you know, where do we see those tasks? 
the output in those tasks oftentimes is not tangible. We have oftentimes probably a subjective idea whether things work or not. But even if that is the case, like the timeline oftentimes is relatively long-term. Uh, engineering projects go on for years. And so th the study design is not as apparent because it's not necessarily entirely clear what we want to base the incentives on and what we want to base the statement that performance is affected on because we're not having a hard measure. So in addition to the difference being about measurability of performance, are there other reasons to believe that the findings that we have from studies on more routine manual tasks may not extend to these other production settings that are uh, more complex, perhaps team-based, and so on? Excellent point. So the kind of the mere fact that tasks are different, you know, would not, uh, that, that measurement is, is less than wouldn't, wouldn't, I wouldn't speak to that. There's two answers to that. First of all, the field that has done some studies in this domain, you know, non-routine, analytical, or creative tasks, as the focus there was, like creative problem-solving tasks, was psychology where studies of these uh, issues go back to the 60s, where various people have looked at how well individuals perform out-of-the-box thinking in, for example, the, the Kendall problem, where you, you get a task, you get a set of things, and you can solve that task only if you use the objects that you get in an unconventional manner. So you basically have to have a breakthrough idea to use things differently than you usually use them. And, I mean, these are psychological studies uh, that have been very influential, but they suffer from a couple of problems, we would say. A, most of them study a very specific kind of problems. It's, it's really those, you have to have a breakthrough idea. You know, just to make one step to think out of the box. So there's less of a more, uh, which we believe is, is important in also many of those analytical tasks of a, you know, you just painstakingly collect information and then recombine it, uh, sometimes also in, a, in an arduous manner. So the nature of the task was somewhat specific. And second, I mean, as in, I guess, many psych studies from that period, sample sizes were not that phenomenal. So this probably the most cited of those studies on the candlelight problem, uh, I think, has 19 people. The broad evidence from those psych studies is that like, monetary incentives either do nothing or are actually counterproductive. Uh, and there have been, you know, there has been sense making, uh, like providing incentives uh, restricts the uh, willingness or ability of participants to think out of the box. Has been argued by by those psychologists that may be due to something like choking under pressure. Also. That has been taken to a wider audience by you know popular figures in the in the management sphere and uh, basically turning that into you know, economists, all that economists can do is talk about incentives, and that may be great to motivate windshield installers uh, or strawberry pickers or assembly line workers. But all the jobs that we really care about, knowledge workers that come up with uh, new and creative solutions, you know, they do not react to that. So incentives are out of the window. Uh, like a very prominent example is Daniel Pink, uh, who has a TED talk that by now I think has like 25 million views, who wrote the number one New York Times bestseller uh, titled Drive. And his story is exactly that, you know, incentives don't work. You have to, like everything that economists can say about motivating performance in, in those relevant tasks is irrelevant. Actually, this brings me to one of my pet ideas, which is that the best way to sell books in the bookshop of an airport is to take what economies were doing 40 years ago, simplify it, distort it, and then argue against it. <laughs> like any fool can do that. Yeah. But of course, we know that our profession has moved enormously yeah. since then. So that is true. I think what, what is fair is that most of the tasks that we looked at in those studies for very good reasons. I mean, I mean, the other thing is like, if we look at what's the history of empirically testing contract theory, I mean, we've been only doing that for 20 years. Obviously, Lafon's work in the 80s, but like seriously having like real firm that we've not been doing that for a very long time. It was, I think, completely logical and correct to start with the stuff that we understand it and that we can neatly measure 
And then there's been, you know, lots of explorations around. I've been doing those things myself, understanding the behavioral aspects of how incentives work. You know, as you've worked, like non-monetary components like rank, how does the, how do, do they affect things? So one of the nice things, and I guess the, the setting that we found, I think is really neatly amenable to, to test the things. It obviously, this is now some somewhat exposed storytelling of how a project came about. So we were interested in, in studying teams. I've been doing that for a long time. My co-authors have been doing that. Then by happenstance, we came acro across the setting that we are now employing, which is escape rooms. Escape rooms are real life experiences where people pay money to be locked into a room and then have to solve a sequence of problems to find a, a way to leave that room again. This is embedded in a story. A classic story would be, you know, you're, you're, it's the classic James Bond situation. There's a, a nuclear bomb, which has a one hour countdown. You have one hour to dismantle the bomb. The information that you need to dismantle the bomb is hidden in the room that you're locked in. And you have to solve combined clues, find information, recombine it in innovative ways. And then in the end, come up with the numeric solution that would defuse the bomb. That story, and so there's variants of that, you know, are really also meant to bring you into the game. The environment is meant to give you the feeling that you, you really have a, a hard task to solve within that hour. The neat thing about that is that we have a clearly defined performance measure. We see whether a team manages to solve the task, so leave the, the room within an hour or not. And in the, on the intensive margin, you know, if you manage to leave the room before the hour has passed, you also see how quickly you manage to do it. So these are self-generated teams of people, typically friends or relatives. They go inside the room, they have to solve a problem, put some clues, combine them together. You are arguing that the big advantage of this setting is that while it is non-routine and analytical, and in this case also team-based, it overcomes the issue of lack of measurability that is pervasive in this type of task because we can measure whether they manage to solve the problem or not and how quickly. Can you tell us in what dimensions this type of escape the room settings resemble or can be argued that are close to other non-routine analytical team tasks? If you, if you look at the components, so it's, a, it's clearly a team task. But obviously, by, by design, yes. Exactly. For various reasons, you know. You, and you also, if I put you alone in that room, you, you couldn't do it for once because within an hour, you know, you couldn't find the information that you need, combine it. So there's by the time constraint that includes this technological link. Uh, but overall, what you see when you observe those tasks is also you need intellectual input from various team members to come up with this. So there is, this has really, I think, the, The, the makeup of, I mean, if you write a paper, you know, sim similar things. Uh. If I had like, you know, one of these games in summer camps where there are two teams pulling a cord and seeing which one manages to pull harder, that will also be a team task yeah. because a single person will not be strong enough to overcome a team. Yeah. But here, the big element that you are arguing is that The team component comes in that the information held by different members of the team has to be combined. Exactly. That's, that's, that's the role that the team plays here, rather than the addition of, of sheer force, the combination of ideas or insights or... And other, I mean, so the, for this tug of war, I think like Holmstrom's effort one plus effort two plus effort three is team output is, I think, a perfect model. Here, not so much. And, you know, foreshadowing, I guess, what we're going to talk about in the end I'm not sure whether we have a perfect economic model of what the production function inside is, but an important element is this combining only partially overlapping information sets in a way such that something new, something, some problem solution comes out of it. So this is also a non-routine nature. Exactly. At least for the team who are playing it. Like, I guess that somebody has come up with it, with this idea of, all right, so if you are watching this, I guess that for you, who has been watching this type of teams for years and years now, this is routine, <laughs> right? You know exactly how the game works. So putting together information will be immediate for you. But for individuals who play this for the first time, that will be non-routine. That, that will be your argument. 
Exactly. So you're facing a new problem where there's not an obvious solution that where, where also the path to the solution is obviously clear. It's not like, you know, I have to lift 10 stones and then the problem is solved and I know how to lift each single one of those stones. Some of the tasks will be of that nature uh, or closer to that na nature that you have to solve, but a few of the others, you really have to come up with a solution to a problem that you haven't seen in that form. So there's the non-routine element, and so clearly it's it's cognitive demanding. So it's I mean I said lifting stones, like very little has to do with lifting stones. Uh, a lot has to do with finding information. Also like coming up where to where you could be looking for it, how to store it, such that you in the course of the that hour can retrieve it. Because I mean just you know seeing something and then forgetting about it. So taking notes, for example, is a, is a seems to be an important part for successful teams. All of that, I think, very much resembles aspects of what we see teams in past, that, like product development, paper writing for academics that we would also see. So something that you have not mentioned just now, and you did not mention either when I asked you about how the findings about the effect of incentives on productivity in a routine manual task may or may not extend okay, to this uh, more interesting setting. Something that you, you haven't mentioned so far is the fact that the type of individuals who undertake this non-routine analytical task may be different in terms of the relation with the task. Yeah. Like for instance, if, if I ask uh, somebody who is like breaking stocks with a pick and ax, Yeah. Uh, what is the optimal number of stone breaking without, you know, any type of reward? Probably that optimal number will be zero. Yeah. But here, the optimal number will not be zero. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and this is because they are, you know, the role of intrinsic motivation. Why does intrinsic motivation matter in this setting? So intrinsic motivation, or what we say task utility, right? because people really enjoy solving that problem. I mean, A, In the specific setting we're looking at, there's a very clear indication that people enjoy doing it because they are willing to pay for it. That's the, yeah, I think that, that's difficult to argue against. And, and part of that may be just, you know, the, 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 I pay for having a chance to hang out with my friends, but then I could do very, ma very many different things. And that, I mean, so the, the price, depending on the time of the day you're going in, at the period of time where that study was run, was between 60 and around 100 euros. That's actually a relatively substantial price. For that, you could have a nice, you know, nice evening at a beer garden. Uh, so people really seem to also not just spend time with their, their friends, but also enjoy to, to work on those problems. Now, I feel or we feel that this interest in working on cognitively demanding problems is something that is relatively common in those non-routine cognitive demanding tasks. Obviously, probably not. I mean, if look at us, I guess we are also the knowledge workers. We oftentimes work in teams. Not all aspects of the paper production process we enjoy to the same degree. But even so, we are not there's career incentives and so on. But uh, we are having flat pay. You know, we are writing papers. Uh, and I think even absent career incentives, you know, we would still be doing that because we enjoy it. Yeah, at least some of it. Yes. At least, at least some of it. Exactly. The one, one thing that stuck in my so that was the first time that I really thought about uh, like knowledge workers and how they would be different and you know what's what's different in uh, in that sphere was when I was I think it was the Society of Labor Economics meeting in San Francisco 2005 and I was uh, was visiting a friend in Stanford and I was going by train to Stanford and the, all the billboards uh, at the stations just showed long numbers like like white billboard one a humongous number. And what turned out was that this was at the time a Google recruiting campaign because what you could do is you could basically factor out the primes of this large number and the prime factors of that number gave you a phone number that took you to the Google recruiting office. So the idea here was that Google was not advertising that this was a recruiting campaign because he wanted to select not just on the basis of ability, but specifically on the aspect of intrinsic motivation. Exactly. That it wanted to select only those who were doing that problem for the fun of it. Exactly. Unprompted, like standing there thinking about, oh, I could, you know, could factor out the primes. Of it. So I agree then that your task includes intrinsically motivated workers 
that non-routine and analytical tasks often include intrinsically motivated workers. Why is it that intrinsic motivation may affect the relation between incentives and productivity? The first cut would be, and in that sense, so first of all, I think intrinsic motivation is important. And you asked before, you know, why would we want to study incentives there anyway? So, I mean, one thing that could happen is that you know, people are motivated to solve those problems anyways. You also have a competitive component even present. No, it's, it's probably hard for incentives to have an extra effect because people are already motivated. So we can look at this. The second part is, as we know, in many tasks, performance has more than one dimension. So multitasking. In our context, there is multitasking in the sense that, you know, you have to solve multiple subtasks to end up uh, with the solution to the problem. But that's not what I'm focusing on. The other thing is that I didn't mention that in describing the setting before. Next to what you could call the quantity dimension, you know, do, do you make it or not? How fast do you solve the problem? We have access to a measure which we like to interpret as a quality dimension. In this setting, you basically, and this detail is important, with our provider, so cooperating with a firm that's called Exit the Room, which has a facility in the center of Munich. It actually runs a whole bunch of facilities all over the globe. And they, their rule is that when you get stuck, you can ask for help. And, you know, those of you that have done escape rooms themselves, you know, this feature is present because, you know, sometimes given the nature of those tasks, you know, you don't know the solution. You, you may be stuck and that can be very frustrating. Some providers basically actively monitor the performance of teams and then volunteer teams. Our provider does not do that. You know, there you require the team to actively ask for it. Now, in our context, asking for a hint relatively clearly is framed to, you know, at least admit defeat. So you're willing to cut a corner to proceed. Mm. And we interpret that basically as shading on quality. Now, if you have task utility, to come back to, to the original question, why does intrinsic motivation matter, task utility matter? If you care about the task, you probably want to do it right. And so one question that we are studying in the paper too is, you now, what does the provision of incentives do not only to the performance in terms of finishing time dimension do, but what does it do to this? How willing are you to cut corners or come up with the solution? Okay, maybe this is a good point at which to describe the experiment that you run, at least the first baseline experiment. So the first baseline experiment is very simple. We have a so for a normal team, what happens, you show up at, so you, you book the date with your friends at the, at the facility, you show up at the facility, uh, they basically tell you the story, the backstory to the room, you know, there's a bomb and the bomb sticking ground, you have to save the city from, uh, from destruction, and in order to do that, uh, this is what you can do, then they, they explain about the hints that you can take and that you have to request. And then they would send you in the room. And so they tell you, you have one hour to do it. In one hour, you know, the bomb's going to explode. And in our main treatment, uh, we essentially add one feature saying that we're having a special promotion at the moment. If you manage to finish in 45 minutes, or not in 60, but in 45 minutes, uh, you're going to get 50 euros as a team, as a bonus. And then we send people in. Just two notes on that. If you look at the distribution of performance in the control settings, so 45 minutes is not special at all. It's not that a lot of things happen at 45 minutes. At the time, we thought, you know, it would be sort of odd to pay a, pay a bonus at 60 minutes. So we wanted to change the time. At 45 minutes is a salient number that is still reasonable. Just to give you an idea, it's a challenging goal because in baseline, I think roughly 8% of teams make it. But it's, you know... If we had taken like the, the next reasonable lower number would have been 30 or so, and essentially no one makes it at 30. And then what do you find? Yes, with this baseline. So now if we look at, I mean, so the incentive is on 45 minutes. So let's see what happens on completion at 45 minutes. If we look at this, so that we have in, in control, we have roughly 8% of teams finishing at 45, within 45 minutes. And in the treatment condition, this moves to more than 20%. So performance, let's say at this somewhat arbitrarily chosen number, but more than doubles. More than doubles, like between two and three times. Now, okay, now, so a couple of things could, could come to mind. What would one expect what happens there? I mean, so now you could say, you know, if you pay for that, you get what you pay for, 
we don't really understand as of now why that happens, but it's not really surprising. But now you could, a couple of things could happen after that. So, you know, you're not, you're introduced the incentives. You may have changed the game from one where I go in and I want to perform as good as possible because this is fun to, to a task that I perform for money. So I might have a crowding out of intrinsic motivation. And we could see that after 45 minutes, performance just falters. And we don't see that. So if we look at the marginal, uh, like the, the, the hazard rates, we see that the marginal probability of finishing actually stays constant afterwards. We are maintaining this difference in probability. So let me see whether I understand this. Obviously, completion of the final task is the accumulation of completion of subtasks. Yeah. Right? Because you need to get several clues. So if you did not manage to finish within 45 minutes, but the incentives made you work harder, it made you complete five of the subtasks rather than the three that you on average will have finished in the control group, you are still almost at the finishing line. So then we would expect that even if you didn't manage to finish within 45 minutes, that accumulated advantage that you had as results from your effort is still makes you more likely to finish within 60 minutes. I mean, the, the nature of the production function is, is critical here in explaining the fact that the improvement in performance does not completely disappear after 45 minutes. Exactly. So fully agree. So, so to be very clear about that, we are not having access to basically a continuous measure of performance and certainly not over time. So for example, like, so we, we cannot do something like, you know, a team has completed X percent by minute 10, X plus Y at minute. So we can't, you know, we can't formally sh- show what you say, but I mean, I very strongly would expect that uh, that the incentive has an effect, a motivating effect for all teams early on. I mean, you could still, I mean, depending on how, you know, how exactly you uh, interpret the model, but if it's a most model of costly effort provision and you really move, like introduce it, which would be, I guess, like a very, very extreme interpretation of the crowding out of intrinsic motivation model. You basically, I remove task utility by turning it from a fun activity to a chore you're paid for. Then the, the, the extreme version also like increase providing marginal at the margin effort after I remove the incentive that, that would be removed. And so what we what we I guess what we can rule out that this extreme version, the intrinsic motivation crowd out takes place. You rule out that intrinsic motivation crowd out takes place in the most extreme version. You rule out also that the agents are at the maximum possible level of effort mm-hmm. that they could undertake. Yeah. You rule out also that the cognitive nature of this task decreases the ability to problem solve yeah. that Daniel Pink yeah. was uh, arguing against, right? That, that somehow there is this freezing effect that, that when... Yeah, the choking under pressure part. Yeah. To do something, working under pressure becomes harder and they freeze over, right? So all these, at least in the most extreme versions, you are ruling out. Yeah. But one thing that this baseline experiment has is that in addition to paying for performance, you have also set up a new arbitrary reference point that is associated with good performance. Like the agents, when they are thinking, if I finish within an hour, that's success. But now you are telling them that no, finishing within 45 minutes is success. So you are bundling their defect of both treatments. You have an alternative to disentangle them what is that? As you, as you correctly pointed out, what the 45 minutes bonus does is makes two things. It makes, it introduces monetary incentives and it makes 45 minutes salient as a relevant point in time, which was not the case in the original setting. Now, in order to see, you know, whether part of the effect comes from this goal or a reference point, we run two additional treatments. One, we keep the incentives but we put it at 60 minutes. So we basically say now we run a promotion and if you manage to finish, you're going to get actually 50 euros. Uh, and the other one, we are doing away with the monetary part, but we're making the 45 minutes salient by saying, just for you to know what constitutes great performance, making it in 45 minutes is actually really good. And what do you find? And we find that the reference point does nothing. 
so the, the treatment where we try to make the 45 minutes salient without providing incentives, whereas the point estimate for the 60 minute bonus is almost as big as the, the treatment effect at 45 minutes. This is clear, we're not seeing as big an effect at 45 minutes, but at 60 minutes, uh, the effect of paying the bonus, no matter at what point in time, is actually indistinct. We're having a roughly 20 percentage point effect at 60. Okay, so these are the baseline results. Yeah. Incentives matter for this type of task and for this type of teams. You then repeat this experiment, but with a new sample of individuals. Yeah. That is, you take undergraduate students that you recruit in Munich University, presumably, yeah. and you convince them to play the game. So these are individuals who have not self-selected. They are not like the regular patrons of yeah. this escape the room business. What is the problem that you are trying to solve by using this new sample? What is the limitation that using this new sample of arguably more artificial, yeah. you know, less closer to the field individuals allows you to overcome? Three, three aspects which, which we think make this sample relevant. One, arguably, as you pointed out, those guys are not self-selected. We assign them the task. So we would expect them to have, uh, uh, on average, lower task utility. And we actually checked that in, uh, in the lab because we asked them, what's your willingness to pay for the task? And on average, their willingness to pay for the task would not be uh, sufficient to pay for participating for the, for the market price of the task. Second, having that student sample allows us to run much more tests with them. With the, the field subject, this being a, like a, a natural field experiment, we can, we can do very little. Basically, we just have observational data. We know how many team members there are. We have an RA there that, that assesses the age, that you know, records gender, but that's it. Uh, and then finishing times and when, when and if they took him. Now here we just do incentivized uh, tests of preferences, the uh, illicit validated measures of creativity, uh, we survey them a ton, uh, exposed and ex ante. Um, so getting this additional information to try to, you know, start to understand what the mechanisms are. Uh, and thirdly, we are exogenously composing the teams. So we are, at the moment, I think we're not sufficiently exploiting that, but the idea was to, to see how does that interact with incentives and be can we speak to that issue of team diversity to some degree? So three things that you mentioned. The second and third are not solutions to a problem, but instead features that allow you to say more. Yeah, exactly. The first one is the one that you mentioned that they have like lower intrinsic motivation to solve the task. They have lower task utility. I will argue that this is not a problem because... You were saying earlier that this is a feature that would have made it less likely for incentives to increase productivity. So conditional on the finding yeah. that incentives do increase productivity, the fact that this sample is associated with high intensity motivation should not be a problem. So it's, it's really the fact that you can measure things better with this new sample. To some degree, I agree. I mean, so one margin that so we touched upon it before when uh, when we spoke. Why does intrinsic utility matter? Was this multitasking aspect? Maybe now's the time where I could speak on on that issue in terms of our main sample, because there we see that introducing incentives actually does not affect at all. Like there's like a, a pretty precise zero effect of uh, introducing incentives on the propensity to take hints. Okay, so they can, they can take hints, but the, the regular sample is not more likely to take hints when they are incentivized. Which tells you that the margin along which the performance enhancement works is not by those guys just being more prolific and asking for help and cutting corners, but it, it seems to be something else. And the interpretation of that would be is that they, you know, they, they have task utility, they, they want to do the task right, they're not willing to shade on, on doing it. So this is something, just, just to be clear, I, I think that you have put it very well. There is a multitasking aspect. There are two objectives now that the regular patrons of the escape the room business are trying to accomplish. One of them is to get the 50 euros. 
The other one is to complete the task without hints. Yeah. And each turns out that they managed to obtain the 50 euros to finish within 45 minutes at the expense of more effort or other things, but not at the expense of substituting away from the other objective. This is not something that is in any way specific to non-routine analytical tasks. Let me give you an example about, about this. See, imagine that I have two groups of individuals, regular runners and undergraduate students. Now I set up a race for fun, okay, with regular runners, and I offer them a bonus to finish within a certain time. I then offer them the possibility of a shortcut that essentially reduces the distance that they have to run. Right? So they can do a shortcut and get over that bend in the, along the river or whatever. Yeah. So I would expect that regular runners are much less likely to take me on that offer, even if they're in the bonus treatment, rather than say undergraduate students who I have convinced them to run the race. And this is because for regular runners, there is also intrinsic motivation or the task utility that you were mentioning that works against getting the shortcuts because getting that shortcut will help with the objective of the bonus, but at the cost of refusing the satisfaction of having the fun of having achieved the race on your own. I, I am giving you this example because this is a routine manual task, right? Running is almost, you know, the definition of routine and it is obviously also manual. So this is not a feature, you know, it's, it's a very interesting feature yeah. that, that is related to intrinsic motivation, but it's not affected to specifically speaking the non-routine aspect, even though intrinsic motivation may be more common among non-routine analytical tasks. As always, I, I fully agree with you. I think there's two. So A, it's made more, intrinsic motivation is more common and probably in broad strokes, at least, uh, given the measurement issues that I hinted at before, I'd assume that we're in a, in a very fortunate situation that we, can, that we think we have a measure for quality. Uh, and I expect that in many of the tasks, kind of tasks that we care about, it's much harder to find hard measures uh, for all the dimensions that you would care about. And in that sense, I think A, intrinsic motivation is probably more common, but it also potentially is more, even more important than in simple routine manual tasks to understand uh, the interaction of incentives on some measurable dimensions on the rest. But conceptually, I fully agree. So there's nothing that, you know, would tie. I mean, this is essentially multitasking with an intrinsic motivation on one, some of those components that doesn't tie conceptually into the model. So we have that the students also increase their performance, but they are more likely to increase their performance at the cost of taking more hints. That's not the case for the regulars. One question that we haven't mentioned at this point is, what is the mechanism? through which there is an increase in performance. Like one would imagine that just exerting cognitive effort will help, but this is also a relatively complex, well, it's a non-routine analytical task, so by definition it has to be relatively complex. So there are other aspects that you are interested in. What type of mechanisms do you have in mind that might be behind that increase in performance? You, you said that, I mean, I, th I think it's like the brain like to some degree is probably a muscle, but it doesn't seem that like it's sweat and toil in like stra straining that brain muscle is really what what drives the results. And I, I guess like also like introspection would tell us if I now pay you more money to uh, to to prove that theorem or you know come up with a, a specific test would not necessarily sort the make the paper better or make it be make it finished faster. Now. What we see, and so so that's basically um, also the result of uh, the paper now is at the moment in, under review uh, with the journal and we've received comments and we've uh, designed an experiment that we want to run in order to exactly get at this mechanism and to prepare that what we've done is run as an expert survey. Uh, so some of the people listening to this podcast right now probably have answered uh, answered our questions two years ago. Only, uh, only experts listen to this program, is what you mean. Only experts listen to the program and some of the experts probably have also answered. And uh, the, the, the things that, you know, our, our suggestions and the feedback of the experts seems to 
highlight the following uh, possibilities. So there could be less distractions. You know, you're, you're in there with a group of friends and invariably some of those teams may have come in after yet another big win of Bayern Munich in the Champions League. And then they may be starting to talk about that. But this will be the ultimate definition of cognitive effort, right? Because you are devoting the resources of your brain to solving the problem rather than to what seems at that point to be a more pleasurable task, which is to discuss the football outcomes or something. I agree on like on some, so two, two other things that I say probably fall also under this thing. Basically, like it's uh, how do you devote effort or energy or attention? So one would be, you know, you, you're not getting distracted. You're doing problem solving. The second, within problem solving, you're somehow getting more efficient in assigning your effort. And that may, may also mean assigning team members, individual efforts to different aspects of the task. Basically, I'm saying, Jordi, you're, you're really great in solving crosswords. We do that, you know, crossword type problem. And I'm really, really good at writing up things. And, you know, I do that. So this is what you call the skill to task matching. Exactly. You, you, you decide to organize your team differently in a way that, you know, takes some effort also to yeah. obviously to organize. You, you assign the person that is well suited to a particular task to that task. So this is some, somehow intertwined probably with this end. So it may, like it may be a means to an end is, you know, that you may have improved communication within the team. So that I either directly affects your ability to solve the problem because you whatever more clearly communicate relevant information or, you know, the communication process is such that then the task assignment or the task skill matches better. And the last point, potentially, like in my mind, it's probably the most important point is, uh, you know, what's the mechanism with which all those things are achieved? Uh, and uh, we find some tentative indication that what incentives may be doing is that they lead to something like an endogenous emergence of a hierarchy, an endogenous emergence of a leader that then assigns tasks, regulates communication, ensures that people don't get distracted. So when I say that, the kind of the last three things, we do not have direct evidence on that. We just have, at best, anecdotal evidence on that. And this anecdotal evidence comes from the information that you were saying you're collecting from the students that exactly. you pay to play the game. Exactly. So, I mean, one thing is, you know, so you have an RA that via CCTV systems can, can follow what, what happens. You're not having access to the, to the tapes that you then could use more extensively which has, you know, has to do with GDPR regulations. We would need informed consent for that to use, and that would then interfere with the natural field experiment. But, you know, we have, you know, we have some visual of that. But importantly, this additional information that we collect uh, in, in survey form asks a ton of things. It was sort of a catch-all approach because going in, we didn't really know what to, to look for. But essentially, the only thing that systematically sticks is uh, a whole bunch of questions relating to that leadership. So there's a very significant increase of, of a response saying that if, if incentives were present, that the teams report that there was a person leading the team. Uh, and there was also a larger desire that someone should take this. And I think that is, uh, that is really interesting uh, because it connects what we are doing to a much broader discussion within management. You know, what is leadership? What do leaders do? It's kind of the, the importance of leaders, which is not to the same re degree reflected within economics. Obviously, we have a couple of important papers on that, but much of the things on leadership probably are not that important in our setting because there's no asymmetric information and there's Teams have also a lot of access to, to means to overcome coordination problems in that setting that in other settings we've tried to use leaders for. There is a work, however, arguing that the role that leaders play is mostly one of coordination. And here, one would expect that even the skill to task matching requires certain coordination because there must be somebody in charge to assign you know, those colleagues to the task. But just generally, this is also relatively, I mean, it will be, as you say, there is not much or, or very little work on this, but introspection will make us conclude that this is unsurprising because 
we observe that organizations are not democracies. Instead, there are hierarchies in which there is typically somebody in charge. And, and the most natural conclusion would be that, well, there must be some element of efficiency that is associated with this type of form. Even in relatively small settings, one would expect that when the team is prompted to become more efficient as a result of the incentives, they immediately come up with the need for somebody to be in charge. So I think that's a very good point. And so to some degree, you, you could argue, you know, this is not surprising. We see that all around. And so now that it was a, a fun setting before, and there maybe like the, the primacy in that setting was not getting the job done, but having fun. Now we're introducing incentives and now you get another priority, which says, you know, we want to, like, we really want to get the job done. And then we, we resort to a solution that we know uh, more generally. So that, that may well be. Then the interesting aspect, I guess, is that incentives can do that trick. Uh, incentives can help us overcome the thing. And then there's, you know, endogenously the team comes up with that that setting themselves, we, we do not need an organizational designer to do that. Uh, because very, very much so, there's no one that picks that leader, the team somehow, I mean, we're not seeing what they're doing, but they're presumably not having votes, you know, presumably someone steps up and then is more or less accepted. And it, it would be super interesting to see how that process is, you know, is everyone who steps up accepted, you know, made it, you know, made it lead to even more We've looked a tiny bit uh, uh, into that uh, in another study. Maybe if there's time, I can speak two minutes about that. Uh, you know, the, the study that primarily is dedicated to leadership. Very same setting, prompted by this insight. One thing that we did is we, instead of introducing incentives, we nudged teams in, in the treatment by just telling them one sentence. Prior research has shown that better-led teams are are having better results, consider picking a leader. And what we see is that that treatment group has, in terms of effect size, uh, with respect to completion at 60 minutes, has almost exactly the same effects uh, on completion rates than the incentive treatment. Which, for, like for now, you know, does not, does not nail down that incent what incentives do is exactly doing that. It's just, now, this leadership, this very subtle leadership intervention seems to have a substantial. Again, you know, this is a set, this is a setting where we're not turning around the, the, the situation from one of, you know, let's just have fun to one where uh, it's about, you know, making money if you complete the task. But apparently what is sufficient there is basically to highlighting the fact that also in this setting, probably known uh, solution is available to the to the teams okay, then they use it effectively just to conclude i want to talk about what is the external validity of this uh, setting with respect to to other settings i think that it is difficult to argue against the fact that this is a non-routine analytical task okay and also obviously team task by by construction so within the classification of Otor, Levy, and Munane, this clearly falls in that cell. However, this is not the only possible classification. Uh, even within, within that cell, there is certain heterogeneity, certain variety in terms of tasks. Hmm? One possibility could be to distinguish between problem-solving tasks and creative tasks. And I think that a distinction could come from the fact that problem-solving are about well, solving problems, obviously, but problems that are relatively well-structured and that particularly somebody has come up with uh, before. Hmm? Whereas creative is about coming up with solutions that did not exist before, uh, that do not just get the job done, but that achieve extraordinary performance. That's the way that they yeah. are typically modeled. Perhaps they are riskier or not riskier and so on. I think that this is, I would argue that this is definitely a problem-solving setting rather than a creative setting. And this is because imagine that there is a team there that observes certain clues and then they come up 
with some way of interpreting these clues that is so original that the escape the room designers have not thought of before. Well, that would not give them the code to defuse the bomb because only the solution that has been thought of in advance by the designers yeah. will defuse the bomb. And I don't mean this as a limitation because creativity or innovation, that's not the only thing that is important in societies. Like, I would argue that most knowledge workers are not doing innovation or creativity. Yeah. They are more like solving problems. So, so it, so, which is fine. You know, this type of tasks speak to, to this very big subset of knowledge workers. Eh? Like, for instance, lawyers are very rarely creative. Creativity will, will be finding some new tax loophole, maybe if you are like a tax lawyer. They are very, very creative, but they are very serious professionals that solve problems. They are knowledge workers. It's non-routine. It's anal- you know, they have all the yeah. features that we were describing earlier. And I think that this will be the closest link that, that this setting has. I'll be very short. I fully agree. I mean, so because I can't be, because I'm a German professor, so I have to talk. I can't be super short. Let me let me stress that other point. So, if you ask me, what's the right the, the right way to incentivize like a collective of sculptors to come up with a new David, so a truly creative work, uh, or the Mona Lisa? Probably this is not, or like a new poem or so. This is probably not the model I would turn to. Uh, but I fully agree. Most of the things that we see, like even products that you know, in retrospect, seem very innovative are probably the, 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 the result of such an incremental process that contains a collection of information, recombining them sometimes in a very menial uh, and clerical way. Uh, and so I think it's, it's... So I once talked to one of my friends in, in, in innovation and say, and asked him whether the Dietmar Haarhoff, so then I can pin, pin, the, pin the, the fault on him if the number I give is wrong, whether there's assessments in innovation research, how much of value creation comes from incremental uh, development and how much comes from like really breakthrough have not been there results. And I, th- I think the number was two thirds come from incremental you know, uh, in terms of you know societal welfare uh, and GDP. In short, again, I fully agree with what yeah. I mean. The, the word incremental innovations is a bit of an oxymoron. Yeah. Uh, right, because I think the two terms are kind of contradicting each other. But thank you, Florian, for coming to the program. Thanks for having me. It was fun. My guest today has been Florian Engelmeyer. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed. The introductory music and logo were created by Aitana Blanesiso, and the episode was produced by Anderson Tan.